Welcome to Archonnect Sessions, episode 57. I'm Amelia, and I'm here with my co-hosts Donna and Ken. Paul cannot make it this week, but we have two of Archonnect's finest writers joining us in the studio, Julia Ingalls and Nicholas Cordy. How's everyone doing? Doing pretty well. Yep, feeling good. <laughs> We've got the Los Angeles side of things hold, held down. Donna and Ken, how are you guys doing in what I've heard has been a horrible snowstorm, at least where Ken is? I'm doing great, but yeah, I think Ken's kind of snowed in. <laughs> Man snowed in, forced to podcast his way throughout, throughout the it horrible It is Minnesota, winter. and it's not Easter yet, so chances yeah. of snow, highly probable. Yeah. Well, you can keep warm by the two long-form features that we have to discuss on this week's episode. <laughs> Rub your hands together, Ken. Rub your hands together over them. Exactly. No, I, we, have, we have Tom Maine to keep us warm. That was part of the warmest <laughs> interview I've ever read. <laughs> yeah, let's get into that. So one of the articles that we wanted to talk about on today's podcast is an interview that Julia Ingalls did with Morphosis's lead, Tom Main. And this was a beast of an interview, I would say. At least it started out as such. So Julia, do you want to give a little background? Sure. I went to interview Tom Main. And prior to interviewing him, I had kind of looked through all of the interviews he had done before with the goal of never asking him the same question. And it was going to be focused on the new monograph, M, which details 18 of Morphosis's latest projects. But, I mean, when you're talking to someone like that, invariably, you're going to touch on the entire breadth of human history, <laughs> all within the context of his life experience. He's 72 years old. He's basically an artist working within the architectural realm. And we ended up having this fascinating, long-ranging conversation. There was a whole, the transcript uh, that I turned in was 7,000 words, and we had to cut it down to about 3,500, <laughs> which uh, resulted in the deletion of this great Cy Twombly anecdote, among many other, you know. Yeah, how did the Cy Twombly thing factor in? Was he, it was relating his work to one of the paintings? Well, he was talking about, he had this, the way that he began his narrative was explaining that basically... As a kid, he'd always had this incredibly active interior imagination. And it wasn't until his late 30s or 40s that he was really able to start communicating this in any like understandable way to the outside world in terms of through speech. And so the Cy Twombly anecdote was about watching school children uh, in a Cy Twombly gallery draw uh, in front of a painting. And <laughs> he was marveling over how they were so inspired by the work and they were able to engage with it because they were relatively young. And he was sort of lamenting the fact that that tends to get kind of beaten out of kids or discouraged anyway, the older they get. Uh, in other words, you know, everyone sort of has this great imaginative interior world, and then we're sort of conditioned to shut it down at some point. Yeah. And so much of the interview, even with what we took out, there's much more to it, speaking towards it. But that Maine has this constant recurring theme of kind of not just the struggling artist, but the person who has to constantly fight to get his ideas out of his brain and into anyone else's. And you see that throughout the interview of how he's gone through a lot of dark periods, like kind of struggling with how to relate to, to other people, basically, and, and get the jobs that he wants and get them done. And in that respect, of course, he has a whole a gigantic monograph to speak to the success of that. But I think it's a really interesting take to be able to see the vulnerability and and the, the struggles that he does bring up throughout the course of the interview. Yeah, it's the two are inseparable, his approach to the work and the work itself, which makes the monograph that much more interesting um, because you understand that this is the, the end product of a lifetime. Well, I shouldn't say that, but let's say five decades of practice. He's got at least 20 more years in him. Yeah. Oh, yeah, he does. <laughs> he was spry. He does. Uh, I think Paul made a comment that he hopes that he can be have that much energy when he's 72. And I told Paul that, well... 
Tom had just had a smoothie prior to the interview. So, you know, <laughs> it's possible. Would, yeah. <laughs> so smoothies and being like Tom Main at my age, I would be totally satisfied with in terms yeah. of energy level. Yeah. It was interesting to get into the emotional dynamics of the work, something that kind of got edited down. He was joking. I'd asked him how he deals with the frustration of working with clients who don't immediately understand his vision or who want to modify it, which is like every client you're ever going <laughs> to have a relationship with practically, it seems. And he was saying, do you ask everybody this? Like you should put together a book. And then he said, no, 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 you shouldn't. Cause that would be horribly depressing to ask other architects about how they struggle through these times, which is, you know, how do you manage to get your vision across without compromising it and simultaneously meeting the demands of, you know, the real world. And it was interesting to hear him talk about that. I think that's something that every architect has to struggle with. I mean, that Donna, is that something that you have to deal with or? There have been moments, and I mean, I don't, I hesitate to even begin to compare myself to Tom Main because he is, Do of it, course, Donna. a genius. <laughs> but there have certainly been moments in my working life, especially early on, where I felt like the only part of a certain project was maybe, you know, one, one little detail of how the baseboard turned a corner or one way that the, you know, one drawer pull that I specifically picked or, or a certain tile alignment or just some tiny little bit that I was like, that's a piece that interests me in this whole project. But what I loved about the, the interview is that he really is able to say, you know, I operate in a world in my head and I also operate in this real world and I have to make those things work together somehow without betraying one or the other. He's, you know, his, his work's amazing. And I, I was lucky enough about a year ago, he came to Indiana and um, spoke at Muncie at Ball State University. And uh, we talked about it a little on the podcast. But one of the best things about that day, he came and spoke to students and did a couple different things through the day. But one of the absolute best parts was my friend, Josh Kogshaw, who works at Ball State, teaches there and had previously gone to SciArc and, and graduated from SciArc and worked for Tom, put together a little lecture of Tom's drawings over the years. So going all the way back to the Kate Manolini and before and put those slides up in the lecture hall. And then Tom just extemporaneously talked about, oh yeah, this is what I was thinking about when I did this drawing. And this is why this series of drawings came about. And I was interested that he said very clearly that at some point he really started to think of the drawings as investigations of themselves, not investigations of architecture. And I have not seen the monograph yet, but I can't wait to really look at those drawings and that density of information that sort of wavers back and forth between the built world, the imagined world, the and the world of the actual sheet itself, the drawing itself. So you all have seen the monograph. I mean, right? I, I haven't yep. even seen except for the images you posted. It looks like it's going to be gorgeous. <laughs> you can take your architectural pilgrimage to the site of its house, which is Arcanex HQ mm -hmm. on the West Coast. Um, <laughs> I will. <laughs> <laughs> what I also really enjoyed about the interview is, is looking into these kind of the trials and tribulations of simply getting the work done, even after the fact that it's been agreed upon, but all of the different back and forths that happen in the course of deciding how to realize a thing and, and looking at the monograph as well, how there's um, evidence of that. And specifically, one of the projects that came up in the conversation is the Vals Hotel, which in discussing the program, the client described specifically as one of the requirements, like people have to have good sex in this hotel. And that's mm -hmm. something that sounds yep. like it could be completely, you know, taken out of context to, to be used for something else. But in this case, it's just like, that's a very clear expectation and a very clear meeting of minds for the architects and the clients. So the an idea of like, this is what I want. And I trust the architect enough to realize 
that goal in the aesthetic that they are known for. So I just, I really enjoyed that particular anecdote in the course of the interview. So did I. I loved it. And <laughs> what I love about it especially is that, you know, hotel sex is this special thing, right? It's not when you've been married as long as I have. <laughs> hotel sex is a special event in a way, and it has a whole history. But the the that he speaks in the interview, and this was the part I loved about, and then I'm going to quote from it. He says, we're going to show less and less, talking about um, what he shows in his renderings and whatnot, we're going to show less and less building and more about the human emotional context of that building. And the idea of one of the things we do in our shelter is have sex. <laughs> you know, we also eat, we also talk, we also, you know, all these little things that we do that are part of the human condition that we do within a sheltered environment that's designed, hopefully, by an architect. I love that he's just so upfront about it. Like, this is how people live. And so we're going to make something that makes that special aspect of human life that much more interesting. I was just going to say, when you look at the monograph uh, and you go through those images, it just it just billows out of the pages. It's very clear what you're seeing. And in terms of the presentation, it was something that we touched on. He really wants to, Morphosis wants to sort of use that going forward in terms of not only presentations, but kind of how they approach large design projects. We touched on the Pershing Square redevelopment in the interview. And the whole idea of approaching that as a strategy first, you know, where you're kind of coming up with this overarching concept of what the park is, as opposed to relaying that in drawing form or in more, you know, traditional design development or whatever. I think that's fascinating. So that was that ties into that the Vowels Hotel, I think, is sort of the first iteration of that kind of process that we're going to see more in the future from them. You know, back in um, in my education, I was fortunate enough to see uh, two of the great architects and Tom being one of them, uh, lecture, the other one being John Haydock. And the thing I take away was um, at Columbia, and it was it was so it's striking because of the person he was then versus what he seems like now. A student asked a question about something on our project, why he used a particular material, given that it was a west-facing material, and and the answer didn't seem to satisfy Kenneth Frampton, who was in the audience. And Kenneth Frampton, there's Kenneth Frampton, there's Stephen Hall, there's you know, all these other Columbia people sitting there. And Kenneth Frampton started really poking at him pretty strongly. And Tom Maine just totally ripped Frampton a new asshole <laughs> in that lecture. And this is right around the time. It's which is so funny. It's just so great to see this model in the, in this piece. He talked about that Chiba golf course and about he goes and it's this was just after the 91 recession or the, the, the time I saw the lecture was just after the 91 recession. So the golf course never got built. And he, he said to Ken Frampton, he's in the audience, and he said, I did 1500 fucking drawings for that project. Don't tell me it's not built. He goes, <laughs> he goes, I can he goes, I may not be able to literally walk through that project. He goes, but I did the work. As far as I'm concerned, it's built. So when I get to the interview and I read through the interview today and I'm thinking about who that person was then versus who he is now, he seems comfortably at ease with his career and who he is and his work. And having gone through those points along that timeline, he seems relatively at ease 
doing what he's doing and having fun at it. Did you, is that the, because that's the kind of sense I had from the interview. Is that kind of how it felt to you as well? It did. But I think that is in light of the fact that he did have to go through so many dark periods and struggles and frustrations. So at this point, it's kind of all golden, you know, (laughs) he really had to earn it. Uh, But I mean, he still gets frustrated. I think we also cut, I can't remember now, a mention of he just recently had to, there was a project in China, which he had been working on for five years, which just like got cut. And, um, you know, he still has to deal with the reality of the world. But I think that, yeah, after a certain point, uh, I think he says something to the effect that um, he has to look at what he's accomplished and what he's put out there. And there's there's joy in that, you know. I love the the bit about how he, uh, he's been working on the book for a while and he's trying to get to a certain level of sparsity was the word he used, which I thought was lovely. That, you know, it started as 50 pages and then got whittled down and down and down. And I'm thinking about it in the way that I think about how Mies van der Rohe used marble in like the Barcelona or the Tugendhat house or whatever, where everything is so sparse and empty. And then there's these slabs, these vertical slabs of marble that you just are all the more beautiful because they're so rich and textured within this very empty space. And again, that's why I'm really excited to see the book and the way he speaks about it being all of a certain color palette. I mean, it really sounds like the drawings and the book all work together as that the whole thing is an object rather than being a book. It's really just a a sort of sculptural object. And I think, Ken, like you said, when I met him a year ago, he he does seem very confident and comfortable in himself. And uh, yeah, I think going through the struggles and coming out the other end and being so successful and so lauded now, which he rightfully is, it's it's beautiful. I think it's the kind of career most architects could only really dream of. It really seems wonderful. And his the whole monograph taken by itself, if you compare it to what we did with, um, or the interview we had with Tom for the Haiti Now project and the, the Haiti Now book that was put out, I believe about half a year ago or so. Those two interviews with him are just so radically different. And he really, no matter how much we cut, the guy can still talk and he can talk like there's like a series of infinite graphs that can be extended in any direction about any topic that he decides to talk about. And so I was just, I was thinking back on what we had discussed about urbanism and specifically in relationship to his changing idea of living in LA and operating in LA and bringing that knowledge and experience into working with in Port-au-Prince and Haiti and how that conversation just never really Oh, didn't of course there could be overlap, but it, in terms of the conversation about M, it was almost always almost completely separate conversations. That he's able to kind of maintain these completely different tracks of the art architect uh, kind of profession and that major uh, sensibility combined with, or rather distinct to the separate entity of the urbanist and the person working in, you know, extremely large scales of like city building. So as a companion piece and kind of trying to situate this guy's many, many decades of work, I think those two interviews work really well together. And I'm so glad we were able to talk to him just in reference to the monograph. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I was going to make a point which escaped me because I got, oh yes, his compartmentalization is impressive. And he, a few times during the interview, he spoke about having these different realms, specifically in regard to the Pershing Square redevelopment, the idea of like a strategical realm versus, you know, a more art-centered realm versus, and it was interesting to hear him speak of this. I mean, you feel like you could speak to him for a week and still not be done, you know? Like there <laughs> yeah, were just absolutely. endless troves. He can compartmentalize, but then he can also just like 
not have any boundaries <laughs> whatsoever <laughs> um, well, in terms me, of conversational topics. He gave me relationship advice, which I think we ultimately cut. That was hard to cut. That was really hard to cut, I got to say. But what the point, it? yes. Oh, oh yeah. What was the advice now that we're on it? The relationship <laughs> advice was he was making an analogy between the commitment to architecture and marriage. And he's been married to his uh, wife, his current wife, I think for 35 years. But he was telling me, now listen, you get married, you know, make sure you really know who this person is because, you know, shit's going to get real. <laughs> Those were his actual words. And I mean, but he was he was drawing this great uh, analogy to his profession, you know, which is, yeah, there are going to be times when it's very difficult. So choose wisely. If any young students out there are listening, I guess <laughs> that would be Tom Main's advice to you. <laughs> Love it. I think that's actually a really perfect transition into the other piece we were going to talk about today. So we have Nicholas Cardi on as well to talk about this recent interview that he did with the authors of the book Inventing the Future, Post-Capitalism and a World Without Work by, and I'm going to attempt to pronounce one of the co-authors' names correctly, Nick Cernicek and Alex Williams. So Nicholas, do you want to give a little bit of background about the book and the interview? Yeah, sure. I stumbled upon the book last winter. It came out in November and it was making some rounds on social media, getting really great reviews by uh, some interesting figures in the architecture community like Mike Davis, but also economists and other and other academics. And it's, uh, so I ordered it and it's, it's one of the first books I've read in a while that couples a, a really strong critique, a critique that feels really relevant of kind of contemporary, the contemporary political landscape with an idea, a constructive approach to how we can actually create change. So their thesis kind of is that contemporary politics defined by Occupy or the Arab Spring, focus too much on immediacy and, and, and don't get into issues of scale. Whereas on the opposite side of the political spectrum, neoliberalism is actually a, a very formulated approach that was created through a think tank. And that because of them, their strategic long-term thinking, they're able to achieve real results and kind of create the world that we live in today. So I was really interested in it. And then as I was reading it, their main kind of platforms are, uh, or orienting points are full automation and a universal basic income, which I thought were both very pertinent to architecture and conversations that are happening right now in architecture. That's what, in, in what initially thought made me think that this was a good companion piece to discuss with. The main interview is because of this idea of, for lack of a better word, streamlining the architecture profession to remove the stuff that could become the shackles of a unhealthy work culture. So if Maine says, I did 1,500 drawings for a project, mm -hmm. it's built. Imagine what his uh, freedom for creative practice could have been if certain tasks of those could have been automated. Obviously, it's an impossible reality to imagine, but this is what these authors are effectively trying to build a new society around. Is that kind of a... Yeah, Fair representation. Yeah, I'd say so. Although I think that it's kind of important to characterize it as not necessarily utopian in the sense of a speculative future, but rather they they believe that this is very possible and outline a, a gradual approach to implementing it. And actually, if you look around the world, there's there's a lot of initiatives right now to come up with universal basic income platforms. Uh, there was it went to referendum in Switzerland and I think in Finland, but it's also definitely a conversation happening in other countries in Europe. And it's actually a, it's a idea that you see on both sides of the political spectrum, both left and right. But what's interesting about there is is uh, the way that they do imagine constructing an entirely new society, but saying that this is actually a pragmatic possibility and one we can achieve. 
So uh, going back to Maine again, Amelia, something you just said about about Tom Maine interview and, and what I said earlier, that he made this comment about being interested in showing more of the emotional response of the human emotional response to the buildings rather than the buildings as objects. I mean, I, it, to me, there's still this ultimate dream of automation that, yeah, we have self-constructing building bots, right? You you write a, you write a program, the algorithm works, the self self-assembling building bots build the building. And then there's still somehow, maybe it's just the romantic in me, there's always going to be this human emotional connection that is the thing that you would want to be able to do without worrying about how much you're going to get paid for it, right? So the the wood carving or the painting or the the you know the art side of it that is the thing that you know as my husband says he's an artist you know if money was no object he could keep ten of himself busy making things because he has so many ideas in his head but it's that need to put the economy into that system that makes it hard for everyone to justify the things that make life so beautiful frequently right so when we get the total automation of architecture, I still see that room for the creative hand. And if we don't have to be spending all of our waking hours making money, that creative hand only has more room for expression, as I see it. I, it Nicholas, does that, does that relate? Definitely. Um, and that's actually something I, I asked them about specifically because, I mean, architects, they love their work. And even if it's sometimes really bad hours or bad work environments, they still love what they do. And in their kind of future that they envision, well, first of all, they, they make a point to make to state that it would be a gradual approach, kind of eliminating the really bad jobs first, but um, right. also that there would always be that room because, I mean, humans do do that. We have this ambiguous territory between what's labor and what's work and what we do and what we love. And I think what, what's interesting is you, you see these precedents actually within architecture, New Babylon by Constant. Neuheins, and that's another name I totally butcher. We'll put it in the show butcher. notes. <laughs> um, which was a, it was an architectural speculative city where humans could just play and do whatever they wanted. And, and in that idea, play is very much a creative thing. And I think, yeah, going to back to the conversation about Tom Main that Julia had, that that's really one of the interesting things is that architects are constantly bemoaning the fact that they have to operate in an economic system that I think is not only just generally not necessarily hospitable to radical or creative thinking, but actually is increasingly less so. And I think you see these conversations often. And the idea is, how do we separate that? How do we separate, for example, architecture is a thing we love from architecture as the world of horrible hours <laughs> spent all night in the studio that we valorize as... Yeah, that, that valorization is also something that I think was interesting that came up in the context of the interview was that you specifically asked uh, the authors about this subject of work ethic and how that kind of comes out of labor and might actually be a, a completely ridiculous and a completely awful thing to valorize. And anyone is just saying, especially if we have this ideal of automation to get to the point where people can focus on truly the thing that they enjoy doing and not so much the stuff that simply has to be done. However, and I don't necessarily, I'm not prepared at all to like play devil's advocate in this, mm -hmm. but I think there is something incredibly rooted within any profession regarding the work ethic that makes it almost impossible for someone to regard a profession in separate from it. So if you're thinking about being an architect, yeah, you might start dreaming about those hard long hours, but they're so rewarding because of X. Or yes, you have, you want to show your worth at the beginning of the first five years of your career because you know it'll pay off at a later point. And obviously these things don't sound good on paper, but they become the personality of the profession. And 
indebitably, like, cannot avoid influencing people's opinions of that profession and, may, and ultimately deciding whether or not they want to go into it. So I think it's kind of like it's it's hard to separate the two, at least at this point, and that might be part of what the authors are getting at and why this is so destructive, is that it is really hard to separate the idea of the work ethic from the actual profession. Totally. And, and, and kind of going off that, one of the things that, one of the reasons I was interested in interviewing them within an architectural context, not strictly an economic context or political one, is that I think in architecture right now, we have this conversation about politics, it's in a lot of conversations about politics, but it, it tends to talk about the political relation of an individual building or project to its locale. But with their um, with their book, they, they look at the, the larger economy that architecture operates in. And I think that we can't really separate the two things and, and start to imagine what would it be like, for example, for an architecture student to be able to devote themselves entirely to their studies without having to worry about things like student debt or working extra jobs or being able to pay for their tuition at all. And so I think that that fields like architecture, creative fields that will would have to exist kind of no matter what, I think I would like to argue, um, <laughs> the designing of the built environment, that these are particularly fields that could rally behind an idea like this, um, because they're the ones that kind of so much of what's kind of nasty about architecture as a profession is because of the way it sits within a larger economic system. So if you think about historically, uh, and I'm a lot older than you guys, but if you, you know, historically back to the time of Philip Johnson and before, the architecture was a gentleman's profession, right? It was in, in Europe and England, it was land, like second born sons. They had plenty of money from the family, but they, you know, they didn't, uh, they didn't need to work really, or they only needed to work in a very gentlemanly way that was not like getting dirty. <laughs> you know, I think, where was I going with this? It seems like um, in this history of architecture previous to the last maybe 40 years, it has been more of a leisure activity to practice architecture, to practice design. And people would make a living at it, but it was a very different economic system back then, of course. But then sometime in the history of architecture, this need to pull all-nighters and the, the, you know, making yourself a slave to the drafting board, at some point in our history, that that image took over. Well, can I interject? Yeah. I did some reading about Taliesin West. Uh-huh. <laughs> and it seems like there's a there's a certain masochistic trend for some people who enter this profession of just working. You know, I don't want to blow anybody's minds here, but you know, there are there are certain individuals who seem to just relish just working to the point of exhaustion. And this dates back to the 1940s with Taliesin West. If you do the historical research, you'll discover that. And obviously there are reasons for that. It's so hot. They didn't hide her. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, I, I, I do think that there's a psychological study to be done. <laughs> I mean, I think that that's, that's true. And it, I think that it also comes down to kind of an individual basis where maybe some people work really well all night, whereas other people work best if they have eight hours of sleep. Um, <laughs> but I mean, I was recently having a conversation with a friend of mine who's interning at a big New York firm that I won't name, but she, um, she, she finds herself, I mean, that she's expected to work 12 hour days and is compensated for eight hour days at a really, really bad intern <laughs> level, yes. uh, of yeah. pay. And, yeah. and so I think the idea would be, you know, if she wanted to stay up all night to com like commit to this really great project, great, but that shouldn't be the expectation I think for just getting into the field. But I feel like it should be based on the actual project that they're working on. Like finishing that as opposed to just beating yourself senseless. But yeah, I mean, how do you, again, the, the money is so complex. Like, you know, you need people to build models and you need a certain number of uh, renderings to be made. Anyway, you guys know better than I, but. Yeah. 
<laughs> it, it seems that architecture kind of still operates on like a 1950s or 1960s model in terms of billable hours. My fiance works for Hennepin County, county here in Minnesota, and she's part of what is called a results-only work environment. They're not looking at the model of you have to clock 40 hours a week. They're, 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 res, they're just results-oriented. So why can't we rethink about, like, if, if architecture is just about results, what if I can get that work done in a shorter amount of time, but I should be getting paid the same amount of money? I mean, but if it were just about results and we're focusing on just making sure that those results are met, then the 40-hour work model just goes away. Ken, I think that's where there's like a really significant distinction between creative disciplines and, and ones that would, in no one's imagination, be ever be called that, is that you have this investment in a community that produces things in coordination with each other where the product isn't clear. Like in the deliverable of a creative product might be renderings or models or however, but it's much more difficult, at least in, in my experience and my understanding, to create a more commodified understanding of the time that takes that it takes to go into those things. And where you have a group of people whose like human capital and the way they interact with one another is even harder to kind of orchestrate to make work. So you so you do fall back on this 50s, 60s model of like, okay, everyone in the office at this time, all together, all at once, regardless of whether that's maximum efficiency for anyone, but that it's this investment in the idea of having everyone involved at, on the project or on the task at hand in a way that allows for that creativity to, in some, in whatever way, happen. Um, so that I feel like that definitely happens just in my own experience and seeing how in, with my own friends and my generation of people who do all different types of work, but regardless of what industry they're in, they are expected to work these long hours, but they're able to do it in different ways on a more results-based method if it's not a creative industry than otherwise. Well, but even going back to what Nicholas said, so there's an intern that's working and it's arbitrarily, arbitrarily now, is forced to put in 12-hour days. And, but there's no, there's no, there's nothing to say at the end of those 12 hours, you're going to be have a better product than if you would have had six. So I, I work as hard as I want to work because I'm, and, you know, I'm motivated to do that. I'm not really thinking about the hours. I'm thinking about the project. And I think it's possible to, and maybe, maybe it doesn't happen on a, on a large level, but on a, in a large firm. But I think it could happen in that way so that people are not thinking about I had an interview today, and I, so when I was saying to the, to the person interviewing me, I said, look, I, I don't like putting in overtime just for the sake of doing it, because I see too many people do that, and nothing gets resolved, and no res there aren't tangible results at the end of that. But I am committed to the work and making sure that it gets done, so that if there is a need, that I'm there for that. And so I'm ultimately focused on the project. I never really think about the hours I'm putting in. I'm always thinking about how does the project get done and how do we resolve those things and make it the best project it can be. So when I hear interns arbitrarily force well, you 12-hour days, but then for what? For who? Well, I agree. But yeah, it's like there's the, you have to take the good with the bad, right? The good is if you can do a great project in a shorter amount of time, then yeah, there's no need to be just hanging around the office because you feel like you have to prove to someone else that you're working hard. But the other side of that is we all, those hours in studio in school, that's when the bonding happened. And that's when the fun, crazy camaraderie and commitment to this bigger ideal than just doing homework 
you know, that's when that gets built up. And I think that anytime you're in any kind of profession that requires a deadline, that that energy that builds up around the deadline is exciting and is an important component of why you love to do the work. And I can see that if, if the pressure of the economic, again, if we go back to the idea of a universal basic income, you know, would I push myself to work as hard if I didn't have a deadline? You know, I think a lot of times you want that you want to feel like you've really accomplished something. And if you're working with other creative people, there is this great sense of camaraderie that comes around that. And that's what I thought was interesting about the interview, Nicholas, is that the authors kind of point that out as this, there's this trap that this lure, this, it's this kind of um, romanticizing of this particular notion of working together collaboratively as a way of driving us to create more work to create more, put more labor into probably diminishing returns if you think about it. You know, if I'm up till two o'clock in the morning, am I going to get a better product because I stayed up till two o'clock in the morning or if I got eight hours of sleep? I, I still don't know the answer to that question because I'm still the dumbass who stays up at two o'clock in the morning. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I was just trying to bring this back into the, specifically into the interview. If there, Nicholas, maybe you were going to say something already to this effect, but I just wanted to hear what you would think about if, how Cernicek and Williams might respond to this kind of, how we're kind of going back and forth of like, we see the value in the overextension and the inherent relationship it has to the profession, but we're also <laughs> a little bit irritated by that expectation as being part of like a seemingly... Uh, bro culture. Bro broken and... Oh, bro culture <laughs> yeah. or broken? I was going to say... <laughs> 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 I was just going to say, um, taking advantage of, of people who have have a need to prove themselves in a way that hasn't been clearly defined. I mean, yeah, Tode, I don't want to, I'm wary of speaking for them, but I think that one of the things that they would argue is that so much of this is kind of just embedded into the larger global economy in which we operate and which kind of constructs the way that we operate in it. So it's kind of, it, it becomes very difficult to untangle it and to untangle these mythoses that we've created around how we work and why we work from kind of the brute reality of, of, of precarity that many people are facing right now. One of the things I was going to say, though, uh, jumping off this idea of labor that is paid for based off of the, the project being done and going to back to an interview that was I, I did several months ago with the new New York group FOAM. Actually, they're an international group, but one of them is based in New York. And they have a much different politics than uh, Skernicek and Williams. But what they argue for is the decentralization of architecture offices, where each task, each part of the project is individually contracted out. And while at first that might seem like the kind of creative, collaborative energy that Donna was just talking about would evaporate, I think that they would argue that actually it could enable a lot more collaboration because it wouldn't mean that people weren't in conversation. It just means that they aren't necessarily competing directly against one another for the accolades of, for example, the principal, and they're not having to worry about kind of these larger economic things. They have to worry about their specific tasks that they get done, but they can still be in conversation with the rest of the team. Although, yeah, once again, their politics is, is quite different. But what's interesting, though, I think, is that, that you're starting to see architects approach the economic structure, the, the economy of architecture as something to be designed itself. Whether or not they feel capable of doing that, but having a dialogue that helps create the impetus for doing that on mm -hmm. a large scale. And I think we also briefly spoke about this in um, anticipation of the podcast, was the relationship that 
these ideas and the, that are brought up in the interview have to very contemporary practice, most specifically in regards to the most recent Prisco Prize winner, Alejandro, Alejandro Aravena, and his work in social housing architecture, and how there's it's very easy to become to adopt this kind of cynical view of saying that it's all well and good that any type of architect adopt social values in their architecture and do work that is very explicitly towards a certain social progressive end. However, whether or not that that Band-Aid can actually make any positive change in the long run is still up for contention. Of course, we want to see those projects, but we want to see them as symptoms of a working system and not as a, yeah, to borrow from a terrible song lyric, a Band-Aid for a bear, over a bullet wound. So, <laughs> yeah. Ken, did you have something to add? You know, I think it was refreshing to hear, you know, I, I was quite taken aback by when you were in the interview talking about how the local things don't really, while they solve local issues, uh, like occupy and deal with very, deal on a very local level, that uh, the immediacy issue, um, I thought that was, because I always thought that, you know, one of the problems with Flint was, is that, it, that there's like this competition that wants to happen. And there's things that take so much time to do. And, but I was focused on, well, how do you do something now? How do you do some immediate, how, how, how do you activate the immediacy of this moment that needs, something needs to happen really quickly, but then you brought it back to, but it tends, those things that happen fast and happen, that pop up, that pop up volunteerism or that pop up kind of problem solving tends to fizzle out over time. So it was, that to me was very interesting to kind of reconsider that that's probably not the the best way to approach things, that they maybe solve a small issue, but don't get at larger issues. So that was really uh, important. I, I guess one of the, the two things I had for you, uh, Nicholas and uh, Laura, is, um, or Julie, I'm sorry. <laughs> no problem. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I apologize. <laughs> In light of uh, Mr. Lieberland, I mean, this is kind of really <laughs> interesting to have this kind of counter narrative existing because you, if you spend any time on Arconnect, which I'm sure you guys do all the time, um, and look at the <laughs> chat board, fair bet. <laughs> to to have something that that this this counter opinion about where things need to go was was really was very quite it was quite refreshing and uh, really a thank you for doing that. Um, does does that ever did that come up at all with the um, libertarian policies and how um, Patrick Schumacher and architecture has been slamming neoliberalism from and going at a different at a different tangent? You know, we didn't we didn't talk specifically about Schumacher, although, and in fact, I was kind of bummed because they're not as hip to current discourses in architecture <laughs> as I would have wished. Okay. They're more interested in the 60s, 70s kind of utopian projects. But I do think that there's something interesting in that conversation and that Patrick Schumacher and his Lieberland and this idea of seceding, it is, how do I say this correctly? It's interesting. I think that it's part of this larger discussion that's happening in architecture. It's this, it feels like this moment of serious self-reflection about what is the political character of the profession. I think that surfaced again with the border wall competition that happened last week and the conversation that's really still raging online. And I think that there's actually a lot of, a surprisingly large amount of architects who would ascribe to a libertarian politic and one that they might see uh, Donald Trump facilitating. But then on the other side, you have the Aravenas of the world representing a kind of a different politic. And and I was interested in trying to, to say that there's more than just kind of this left-right binary right now, that there's, I'm trying to hopefully seed into architecture a lot of different potential perspectives. Because, I mean, if you look at, for example, cities like London or New York, basically every city in the world right now, there are massive housing shortages. And speaking to London, projects like those by Assemble are 
really beautiful design projects and, and, and fantastic looking. But I do have serious worries that we might take that as a substitute. We might start allowing that to become the kind of singular replacement for what we used to think about in terms of housing authorities and council housing and public housing. I don't know if that answered your question at all. No, no, I, it was good. I had one question for both of you, actually, because I already know what you're reading because we just talked about it, <laughs> or at least a little bit of what you're reading. What are you guys listening to? Ken with the, the stealth question. The question. Pop quiz. Oh, God. <laughs> Come on. Uh, well, I listen to a lot of music. I... <laughs> <laughs> I'm not going to answer your question in a satisfactory way. Do you, what do you mean specifically? Do you mean like ideology or what are you? What no, do you music mean? wise. No. What do you, music I mean, wise. Music wise. Yeah. yeah. What okay. Do you I thought you meant. He's like, asking for a hit list. Like oh, okay. A, a, like a uh, yeah. Like you're a desert a, island disc. Yeah. You know? yeah like what theorists <laughs> are you into right now? <laughs> Whose podcast are you listening to? No, music wise. You know, weirdly, this is going to sound very arcade or totally old, but Iggy Pop just released a new album. And it's kind of great because he manages to combine this incredibly spare linguistic style with, you know, sort of unchanneled or channeled rather kind of resentment about being alive. That's how I was, <laughs> <laughs> always interpreted. He's really made the best effort to not be that. Yeah, but it's it's sort of refreshing. I feel like, you know, I've listened to in the past year, Deluxe, I really loved. They were this very like poppy sort of talking heads kind of uh, derivative band, which I and I love them too for the same reason in that they combined these very stark lyrics with, in that, their case, kind of upbeat optimism, disco tinged. But I like looking at the future in a very <laughs> kind of cautious yet ultimately optimistic way. I don't know if that's interesting to you or not, but that's the truth. <laughs> Thank you for going first, Julia, and, and taking giving Nicholas yeah, yeah. precious Nicholas minutes to thing. prepare. Yeah, that's <laughs> yeah. Response. I took the bullet for you, man. <laughs> I mean, I, I can't speak to my Desert Island mix, but I think if you looked at my Spotify, the two albums I've been really, three albums I've been really hitting hard the past week and a half or two weeks are Rihanna's new album, Kanye's new album, and Gene Clark, No Other. And I, I can't unite those. I have no idea what a, a former How would you member describe of the Birds. The Gene Clark? It's, it's a former moody, member of the Birds. kind of orchestral. It was like this album he made that was Super high production value. It totally panned, totally fell apart. It has this weird Art Nouveau cover, but it's beautiful. There's a song, uh, Some Misunderstanding, that's just like, it kills me. Um, <laughs> it's, yeah. I'd actually argue that there are maybe some parallels with Kanye's uh, Life of Pablo, but I wouldn't argue it in a public forum. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you both for putting your, your necks out slightly and sharing. Ken, that's like Ken's favorite uh, yeah. ask the guests question. And we, Ken, I've gotten some really great answers out of some one-to-one -one guests that have asked that question. So I'm glad I appreciate you starting the tradition. Our Connect playlist. <laughs> well, there was that time when we posted about Zaha's Desert Island yeah, playlist. Got and some heat for that. <laughs> <laughs> well, I just actually listened to the playlist. We played it in the office. And it is a strange playlist when taken in consecutive order with no feet, you know, with no overlap and such. It's very weird to imagine Drake interknitted with Harry Nilsson and everything else. But <laughs> I'm imagining it right now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. it sounds Sorry. like my playlist. <laughs> But I think we're pretty much done, unless anyone has any more comments about the pieces. And just want to say one more time, thanks, Julia Nicholas, for joining us on the podcast today. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thank you for having us. It's great to have you guys. This has been a really fun conversation, really covering a lot of, a lot of ground. So thank you for how hard you work, too. 
uncover these amazing topics for uh, us boring architects to read about. It's <laughs> <laughs> our, our pleasure. I, yeah, definitely. <laughs> and I should say also that most explicitly Nicholas's piece, but also the, uh, the M monograph are loosely held under the umbrella of our March editorial theme, which is about money. Obviously, anything to do with a firm that the size of Morphosis has implicitly a lot of overtones of what's happening in the architectural economy. And of course, if you're proposing something like a universal income or completely automated, at least to the fullest extent of architectural work, that definitely has huge monetary implications. So let us know what you thought of the articles. Share us, share your thoughts on the comments to the, the episode's post. And thanks everyone for listening. So special thanks to my co-hosts, Donna and Ken, and of course, our special guests, Julia and Nicholas. If you have any questions, comments, or suggestions, you can reach us on Twitter at our new Twitter account, at ArcSessions, or with hashtag ArcConnectSessions. You can also send us an email to connect at ArcConnect.com. And if you enjoy the podcast, please consider rating us on iTunes. And next week, we will have our next, after we took a little break, we're going to have a new one-to-one episode, our interview with architects from Family, New York, Awana Stanescu and Dongping Wang. So tune in for that comes out this coming Monday. That's it for this week. Thanks, everybody.